welcome back to another episode of the Arizona Wildlife Federation podcast. My name is Michael and I'm your host. And today's show is all about fishing. And you might ask, Michael, why in the world are you producing a show on fishing in November? November is hunting season. And you wouldn't be wrong. But you wouldn't be exactly right either. You know, just look at the Phoenix Valley. The Phoenix Valley's fishing season is just now starting. And if we're talking about northern Arizona's cold water fisheries, let me tell you, they are on fire right now. As hard as I work to change my mindset from angling pursuits to hunting pursuits in the fall, and I do, and I do a pretty good job at it, I'm not going to lie, I feel like I'm missing out on something. Because, uh, yeah, now is the time to be out there if you like to chase trout around. So, you're going to learn all about Arizona's cold water fisheries, Arizona's warm water fisheries, how to do it, where to do it, from a couple really fishy guys, Alec and Chase, from their respective orgs, Trout Unlimited and Arizona Game and Fish Department. So stick around for the show. It is a good one. And make sure you leave a little time in your schedule this fall for some fishing. Before we get to the show, though, I got one quick announcement for you. Registration is now open for the Winter One Day Becoming an Outdoors Woman workshop. Becoming an Outdoors Woman is Arizona Wildlife Federation's award-winning program that helps women gain gain skills and confidence in the outdoors. Bow workshops, that's B-O-W, Becoming an Outdoors Woman, workshops provide a safe and supportive environment, conductive to learning, making lifelong friends, and having fun in the outdoors. Bow workshops are coordinated by Arizona Wildlife Federation's dedicated professional bow leaders and are offered three times each year. So. This is a one-day workshop, offers an escape to get away from the cold and go visit sunny Yuma. And if you have been looking at these bow programs but did not want to commit a whole weekend to it, this is your opportunity to get down there, spend a day, and see what it's all about. Please look for a registration link in the show notes, and don't miss that opportunity. It's a lot of fun. All right, with that, join me and Alec and Chase and learn a little bit about Arizona's fishing. Before we do introductions, let me start by saying that I'm here with uh, representatives from both Arizona Game and Fish Department and Trout Unlimited. And I will, I will follow that by saying that we as the Arizona Wildlife Federation, we have a relationship with the department that goes all the way back almost a century to the very first commission. And, uh, you know, just me as a Arizona resident, sportsman, and wildlife enthusiast is... Uh, hugely proud of of our game and fish department i think they do a wonderful job and i think it's something uh, uh, that all arizona citizens should should be proud of um and i will also say that uh chase your boss and i, I might be uh, jumping to conclusions here so correct me if i'm wrong yeah. but your boss doug is one of my favorite people yeah um i just yeah i love them now. yeah and then uh with trout unlimited i will say that trout unlimited here in arizona is our closest working 
partner. Um, so then Alec, your boss, Nate, mm. is, is not only a, a personal friend, but, but also, you know, someone I rely on uh, more than anyone else when it comes to our, our work at the legislature and policy stuff. And I'll say that Trout Unlimited in Arizona, I, I like to I like to toot our own horn saying we're the only conservation organization in the state with our finger on the pulse of the state legislature. And that's not true. Trout Unlimited is there too. So Yeah, Nate is a big key piece of that. He's on top of it. And yeah. Both those guys you mentioned are the perfect people for that role that they're both in. So Yep, yep, I agree. All right, so with that, uh, fellas, uh, just jump in. Alec, let's start with you. Tell me who you are, your position, maybe how you came to it, where you're from, a little bit about you. Yeah, so I'm was born in Tucson, lived in Arizona for most of my life. Um, my role is actually a newly created position with Trout Unlimited. Um, I, the R3 coordinator, so it's recruitment, retention, reactivation. At a Game and Fish Agency, they have a whole department, R3 department, <laughs> which is where Chase works. And so my role is kind of a joint position with Game and Fish. Um, first of its kind in the nation on the fishing side of things. We have something similar on the hunting side with the National Wild Turkey Federation with Jesse Warner does the same similar setup with Game and Fish. Um, and we'll talk about our three, but um, my position kind of supports everything that the department's doing at Game and Fish, but brings in all the resources and history of conservation work that TU has, and we're kind of merging the two. Yeah. And I'll add, if, if folks want a kind of better understanding of, of R3 as a whole, to go back all the way, I think it's almost like the second episode, um, yeah, uh, third episode maybe, um, and uh, that Jesse that you mentioned and Doug that we mentioned a while ago on that episode and talk all about R3. Mm -hmm. So um, before we move on to Chase, though, where are you from and, and what brings you to fishing? I mean, Yeah, so growing up in Tucson, especially, you know, I think Trout Unlimited, there's not a whole lot of trout fishing in Tucson, so... Um, I spent my childhood coming to different places through the state, spent a lot of time in the White Mountains trout fishing, um, moved around a bit, originally went to college at ASU, got into something I didn't really like, and then ended up back at the University of Arizona. Uh, I studied fisheries there. And while I was there, the, the main professor that I had a real good relationship with was the president of the American Fisheries Society, mm -hmm. Scott Bonar, and uh, had a good relationship with Trout Unlimited. And I ended up um, taking an internship with them. And then from there, that kind of led into the work thing. But I've always been fishing. Um, I do bass fishing, catfish, trout. I do it all. But um, really fell in love with trout fishing as a kid, being able to escape the heat, you know, come up to the White sure. Mountains all over the state. But, yeah, that's where kind of where it comes from. Uh, my name's Chase Newland. Um, originally, I'm from Colorado. Uh, grew up there, went to school at Colorado State University. Originally, I was at Boulder University. Looks like looking at my sweatshirt there. It's a little confusion. Um, so I went to Boulder to be a doctor and realized that is not at all what I wanted to do. Um, so I switched to fish wildlife conservation biology at CSU. Um, but I grew up fishing like my whole life. Um, so really big into fly fishing. That's kind of my thing. But I do all kinds of fishing, conventional tackle, that sort of thing. Um, but now I am the fishing recruitment retention and reactivation coordinator for the Arizona Game and Fish Department. Outstanding. Outstanding. All right. So for both of you, um, in, in its very simplest form, what is the purpose of your position? So on my side of things, the purpose of my position ultimately is just to engage the community in the state of Arizona and get them to go fishing. Um, 
really educate them on the opportunities that they have within the state that maybe some people don't understand. I can coming from Tucson, telling people that there's even trout fishing available to them is kind of a foreign concept. So really the education part of things, that's where the recruitment part of things comes in. We're recruiting people that have never gone fishing or just don't know about it. Uh, the retention side of things, that's kind of where the Trout Unlimited I see coming into play with the state agency. Those resources I talked about, they have a longstanding run of putting on events for people casting, fly fishing, casting. So it kind of bridges the gap for people that go fishing once and they're looking for that next step. Um, so that kind of where the retention comes in. And then the reactivation, I talked about it um, in another podcast we did, but the amount of people that move to Arizona from out of state, uh, especially in the sporting side of things, is really striking. And a lot of people I talk to, the biggest hurdle to them fishing in Arizona is just they haven't done it. You know, they've been fishing in other places and they need the education piece of where to go, what to do. So um, our role is just really to hit all three of those demographics, give them the support they need and work with companies, outfits, state agencies to give people those opportunities. Gotcha. Yeah. And similar, but in its most basic form, the whole point of our program is wildlife conservation. You can't, you can't do wildlife conservation if you don't have people who actually care about it. So you got to create anglers to have someone who cares about it, who's buying a license to be able to fund all those projects and whatnot. Well put. Yeah. I sell that angle on things a lot Yeah, because it is, it's real. It's important. You know, if, if people don't have that connection to the outdoors, if they don't have that connection to wildlife, they don't care about it. Exactly. You know? so, so that's, that's one thing that we like really harp on is that, yeah, we want, to sell more licenses. Yeah, we wanna get more people fishing, but we really, our main goal is wildlife and fisheries conservation. It's not necessarily about the angler, it's more about the fish species and making sure that it's there past us. Yeah, outstanding. All right, well, I, I want to spend some time today um, talking about just fishing in general. Um, you know, opportunities, species, ways to do it. But before we get into that, Let's talk about more of the technical details about what you guys offer, what you do, um, programs, camps, things like that. Uh, so maybe let's set it up where we've got a single mom or a single dad who's never fished before, but their kid is showing some interest in it and, and they want to encourage that, that, that interest. Where can they go, you know, if they if they don't have any of that previous knowledge or experience? Um, let's say they live in Tucson. Okay. That's, that's hard. <laughs> uh, so we have the Fish AZ Network. Uh -huh. um, it is a essentially a registration portal, but it collects all of the events from all of our different partners. Um, so Trout Unlimited and so forth. We have all of their events on there. So people can come to there, find events for different skill types um, across different types of fishing and stuff like that. And um, it just gives them a spot to go meet those people that want to teach you how to fish. And on that Fish AZ network, I'm, I would say right now, the majority of those events are those beginner type events that you're talking about. So people that don't have a longstanding history of going fishing, but are really in that beginning stages. Um, we've done a couple of events in the past couple of months at uh, like with the city of Glendale. We did a couple of those where we're literally just introduction to to casting, catching fish, just getting people out there and experiencing it for the first time. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you walk me through one of these events. What does it look like? What species are you chasing? What kind of places do you go? Um, so for example, the last one we were at, it was at uh, Heroes Park in Glendale. Um, and it was just, a, it's called the Hook a Kid on Fishing um, event. And so we 
go out there. We have a bunch of loaner rods. We have bait that we bring. So literally all they need to do is show up. City of Glendale sponsors the first 100 kids uh, youth fishing licenses. So you don't have to worry about a license at that event. Um, and then we just kind of basically go through. We'll give them a basic casting demonstration, kind of show them how to hook the bait onto a hook. And then they're uh, fishing for catfish yeah. in the summer. Um, so there's another one at Bonzal Park that happens in the spring. And that one, they're usually fishing for trout. Gotcha. Yeah, we're just trying to provide support. Like you said, it's sponsored by the city. Most of the time they have food, they'll bring food trucks out. So it's a family event. You know, everybody's, there's something to do for everybody. Even if the kid's too small to really take participation in the fishing side of things, there's things going on. Um, and we just do our best to educate them on the real basics, you know. This is how you string the line. This is how you put the hook on and then just kind of give them the support from there. Yeah. Press this button, cast it out there and be right. patient. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know what it is about fishing that is just so damned intriguing. Um, I mean, any kid, any kid in the world, if you give them a pole, even if they're fighting it all the way there, you know, and they hook a fish, a bluegill, they're going to be smiling. Yeah. You know, there's just, there's, a level of excitement there that tickles some like inner part evolutionary part of your brain um that it just and it still does it to me to this day you know what i mean yeah um, it just it doesn't go away it doesn't lessen it stays exciting there's something about it we saw that a lot at the outdoor expo arizona game of fishes outdoor expo the bluegill tank every time like kid has no idea what he's doing but as soon as you hit, like show them the fish that they just caught they touch it they're freaking out they think it's the coolest thing in the world. So, yeah, the last expo, I never actually, I walked in and looked through the door of the tent and it was just packed. So I didn't yeah. even, didn't make it all the way up to the, to the it, tank. It's, but, it's pure pandemonium yeah. in there. So what Chase is talking about there is our game and fish department has a big expo. Uh, when is it? Yeah, it's usually the last weekend of March, okay. uh, March 23rd. Yeah. I know I we believe. just registered as an yep. organization for it, but uh, it's huge. I mean, it's massive. Um, there's, there's captive wildlife to go see there's there's a fishing pool yeah it's, it's like a little tank so uh, it's it's a huge event and i would encourage anyone anyone to go to that i mean it's just massive um we'll be there arizona wildlife federation so stop and say hi to us but yeah there's they have the swimming pool set up just chock full of bluegill these I will say the poor bluegill have nowhere to hide. So they all like bundle together in the center. Yeah. We, we put a fish habitat in there this yeah, time. Okay. And it seemed to work a lot better. The fish were a lot more willing to come yeah. out and eat. So it wasn't like a, oh, good. you're sitting there really <laughs> right. trying to bait yeah. them to get it to eat. No, it looks like absolute chaos. Yeah, it, it is. But it's, it's organized chaos. Sure. Sure. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, I didn't see any unhappy kids in that room. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, things are so different now. When I was a child, I don't know where it came from. I did, I would go down and visit my grandfather uh, once a summer and it was like a three hour drive. But to me as a little kid, it seemed like just a journey and across the country. Away, I know. Yeah. And now my kids, they fly all over the world and the country and they've been everywhere. But for me, that was a huge deal. And we would catfish on uh, the Mississippi River was, was his thing. And occasionally we'd catch fish, you know, and then we'd take it back. And, and my grandma would, would make sure she cooked my fish for me. And I got my fish, which was a really big deal as a kid. Maybe that was it, you know, but 
something something stuck as a child with me and all I cared about was fishing. I mean, I'd have like an old metal or old metal toolbox <laughs> that I use as a tackle box. And I remember every night I'd like, I'd reorganize my lures and, you know, and then it got into fly fishing and my mom had bought me a fly reel that was missing a handle from a yard sale. And, um, I, uh, I put that on a broken red fire, like six foot fiberglass spinning rod. And that's how I fly fished. And I would tie flies out of carpet fibers that I'd pull out. Yeah. But uh, that, that was my intro to it. And I wouldn't have changed a thing. And I spent my entire childhood, you know, being dropped off on a, on a bridge and then picked up after dark on that same bridge. And I spent yeah. half the day walking up the river, half the day walking down. But today things are different. You know, kids don't have that that freedom, um, you know. And hell, even though I, I see it as such a huge, valuable part of my childhood, I don't allow my kids that freedom either. You know, times have just changed. So kids don't have that opportunity to get out, explore on their own, and figure the stuff out for themselves. So programs like like yours, that's huge. You know, it's huge. It's I offering think, a whole I new think generation kids, yeah, these experiences. Just, they have so many more choices of what to spend their time on now, too. Like, they've got endless technology. There's video games where you can go catch a fish that look real, you know what I mean? So they just have so many more opportunities things to choose from. I like you're saying, when I was a kid, people in my family used to make fun of me because we'd be at camp in the White Mountains. And as soon as the sun went down, like five, ten minutes after, I usually just went to sleep because the only thing I was there for is for the sun to come up and go start fishing again. Mm-hmm. They'd be like, get around the fire. I'm like, no, I'm just here to fish. But yeah, um, <laughs> that's, that's what scouting was yeah. for me when I was a kid. I was a kid with like no merit badges. Mm-hmm. I just went to camp to fish. Yeah. Uh, another cool um, program I'll talk about on the Trout Unlimited side of things as far as youth goes. Over the summer, we've done it. I think this was our fourth or fifth year. Um, I was the program director for our fish camp, which Trout Unlimited does in conjunction with the uh, Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts of Arizona. Um, we did it for three weeks. It's a week-long session each, about 10, 12 kids ranging from 12 years old. And we had a couple 18-year-olds. Um, we take them up for a week uh, on Christopher Creek. They have a scout property there. And uh, we basically teach them everything about fly fishing. We teach them all the way from knots, tying knots, all the way to fish anatomy, to aquatic entomology. And they go through the ringer of everything. And it's it's a pretty incredible program. Um, one of the cool things, at least in my eyes, is there's no service. There's no cell service. So these kids that are attached to their phones, they literally don't have it for a week. And it's cool to see them kind of revert back to kid form and have to, you know, get up early, go do something fun rather than wake up, be on their phone for two hours, go do, you know, before they start fishing. So it's really cool to see. It's cool to see how much interest there is for kids in fishing still. You get them on there, catch one fish and it instantly clicks and they want to learn more and more. So um, that's going to happen again next year. We typically do it the first three weeks of June. Um, it's open to everybody to sign up now. I think we're going to start listing it on the Fish AZ Network if we didn't already this last year. But yeah, yeah, we did it last year. So, so we're trying to grow that program and include more kids that maybe aren't associated with the scouts and kind of do a blend of the two. But that's yeah. definitely a cool program that we do. Yeah, I, I, I'm assuming it's a different program, but but a friend and, and previous uh, guest on this podcast, Jim Strogen, has a fly fishing program he does for the city of Payson. Um, and then, yeah, it could takes you all through the ringer and Jim is just a wonderful man and uh, he's awesome and he knows he's actually the person we meet up with him during the camper we did this last year he was the one that led the aquatic entomology section so he's teaching the kids when you're fly fishing why do you want to imitate certain forms of aquatic insects and what they do differently it was a really good segment yeah and um (laughs) it's hard for me uh 
and, and probably for, for somewhat for you fellows too, or at least maybe one of you to keep, to keep this general and not fly fishing specific, but, uh, but we'll do our best here. Um, I will say that, uh, when we were living in, uh, Tempe and my, my kids were still little, uh, we bait fished, we bait fished for catfish and we bait fished for carp. Um, and we did that in the city ponds, uh, all around Tempe and Phoenix. And it was great. Um, and the catfish was delicious. Um, we take, uh, my, my, my little boys, my buddies, when they'd spend the night, you know, we'd go out and, and catfish and then we'd, we'd fry them up, you know, and just have a feast. And that's, that's something a lot of kids don't have exposure to now. Yeah. Being again, from being from Tucson, the trout opportunities are limited, but there's a couple of real good community waters down there. There's one four or five minutes from my house called Silver Bell Lake and really good catfishing lake uh, for people that are down there. Go there anytime after dusk and one of the bigger catfish I've caught anywhere actually came out of that lake. And so they have decent fish and you can catch them and take them. And like you said, you can eat all those catfish. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Carp are a little bit more difficult. Um, they're not bad. They're tasty. They're just a pain in the butt to deal with, with the yeah. bones and whatnot. But, um, what about Patagonia Lake? Uh, I see every now and again, somebody pulls a giant flathead out of that. But yeah. The catfish in there and then even the bass fishing, it's big enough. You can get a bass boat on there. Um, being is like one of the only lakes you can get to with a boat down there. It's pretty popular and pretty busy most of the time, but like you said, every once in a while, you'll see a giant catfish or a really big bass. Another cool place that I talk about is Aravaca, which is a little closer to the border off the off the Tango and south. Um, it's right next to an Audubon preserve, so it's a really cool wilderness area to explore too. A lot of birding opportunities. Um, it's like a three or four acre lake, real small, but one of the better bass fishing lakes in southern Arizona that I like to go to also. Well, one of the, the tricks uh, that the kids and I would use when we're fishing these urban fisheries, and, and you know, it, this isn't like just because they dump a bunch of catfish in an urban pond, you know, doesn't mean you're going to kill it. Um, they're, they're, they're fickle. Um, they're either on or they're off. And, yeah, yeah. But, and the thing I think where people go wrong is they'll go out, have a tough day, and then kind of like, oh, that, that, that stunk. I'm not going to go back and do that again. Um, truth is, you got to kind of put the time in. But if you put the time in, you're going to have those good times. Um, and what we would do, we would fish a kind of a strawberry jello corn uh, breadcrumb pack bait for carp because the catfish would just eat that stuff up too. So then we had, we'd go out and we could catch... Um, you know, a stringer full or a limit full of catfish, but also get that occasional 20 pound carp. That was just yeah. a blast. Um, so that, that's what I always recommend people to do is to like kind of target carp and expect to catch catfish. Yeah. Um, and it broadens your, you know, your diversity and broadens your fun. I think one of the cool stories is the state record catfish for flathead is a 76 pounder that got caught out of Bartlett. Bartlett yeah. And I always tell people the most amazing part of that story is that the guy that caught his name's Ed flathead Ed. He, uh, he was using a two pound carp mm -hmm. as bait. So most people yeah. would be like, catch a two pound carp and be overjoyed. Like that's a big fish. He right. was literally had that hooked, had it a weight weighted to the bottom and that's what he was fishing with. Yeah. yeah so you got to think big to catch those big catfish. Yeah, you do. Um, and that takes some homework and some equipment. Yeah. I um, mean, you can't cast a, cast a two pound carp on a, on a Zepco 202, you know? But like you said, putting in the time, I remember just reading that interview. He's, he had over 250 days on the water sure. that year. So he's definitely putting in the time. Yeah. Another thing uh, is like time of day going mm -hmm. early in the morning or late yeah. at night for catfish. Usually during the day, it's going to be pretty slow. They're nocturnal feeding fish. So mm -hmm. like, it's another thing we tell a lot of the beginner people is like, 
don't show up at noon expecting to light it up right away. Right. Once, it, right. once that sun starts going down is when you're going to start really getting yeah. lights. You know, how the kids and I, we would just power through. You know, we put in an eight-hour day. Yeah. Um, and sometimes they would turn on in the middle of the day. Uh, but, yeah, there was, I mean, obviously, obviously they're going to be more active during the evenings and the mornings. But, but yeah, we would just put in the time. Um, and we were there when they decided to eat, you know, yeah. and then yeah. the action would start. That's a cool thing about being up in the White Mountains area. I remember as a kid, we'd fish all day. In the morning, you know, you're hitting, you're hitting, and then you have that lull in the middle of the day. You go eat, you come back. And then as soon as you would see the birds start to show up. I remember mm -hmm. you'd see the osprey start to start circling the lake and you'd see a bald eagle. You're like, okay, it's time to start fishing again because that's what they're doing. Yeah. And they know that fish are hitting the top and the, the hatch is starting to happen. So that was always cool to see. Right. Boy, speaking of the White Mountains, the uh, the cutthroat bite is on fire at Big Lake this fall. Yeah. I've, yeah. I've heard a lot of good things, yeah. especially out of the fly shop. A bunch of people coming in saying they're catching some good fish. Out yeah. There. The boy and I hit it this summer with the goal of trying to get him a, a cutthroat for his... Uh, uh, Arizona trout challenge. Um, and we, I mean, we caught, we fished all day long. I mean, I looked like a lobster when I got <laughs> off that lake, I was so burnt, but we fished from sun up to sundown and we worked for every fish we caught. We probably caught, I don't know, three rookies and maybe six or seven rainbows. So it was not an easy day, but one of those rainbows was like 19 and a half inches. My boy caught and it was just like a football. Yeah. So it was a good day just the same, but we cannot pick up a cutthroat for nothing on that day. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm actually planning to come back up here in a couple of days and go to Big Lake and get a boat and try to do the same thing. So yeah. hopefully, yeah, hopefully they're hitting still. Yeah, I, I can only imagine they would be. But yeah, I hear Loon is not fishing as well for the Cuddies this year. I, I haven't heard great things as like overall. I know Big Lake, Big Lake, and then Reservation. I've yeah. heard a lot of people are catching Big Browns right now mm -hmm. at Reservation. So those two lakes I always recommend for sure. Yeah. All right. Um, so let, let's talk about just general what opportunities statewide in Arizona for folks that, um, you know, are interested in getting into fishing and and don't know exactly where to start. So may, maybe maybe we could talk about species. Um, let's start with warm water species. What What is available to people here in Arizona? Carp is a big one. That was one thing like growing up in Colorado, I always grew up carp or junk fish. They're gross. And then I moved here and I love it. Oh my God. It's, it's so challenging. It's so so fun. fun. There's not a freshwater fish that pulls harder. Yeah, no, it's, it's the closest thing I can compare it to is fishing for redfish, but a freshwater version of it. Um, so anywhere in like the canals or there's a few ponds that are down in the Phoenix area that are just lights out for carp on a fly rod. And it's a lot of fun. Yeah. So yeah. All right. There's two ways to look at that. So for common carp, and in grass carp or white mirror. Um, to be clear, grass carp are longer silver fish that you'll see if you ride your bike or take walks along the canal, you'll see them in the canal. Those are put there by SRP. Um, they're, they're, they, they cannot reproduce. They're just there to keep those canals clean. You can fish for them. You cannot keep them. And I see people make that mistake all the time. It's the first big fish they've caught of their life, and they're posting it all over Facebook, you know. Those, those fish don't belong to you. They belong to SRP, um, and you are not allowed to keep those fish. You have to let those go. Um, then there are common carp. You can find those the same in the canals. Um, you can also find them in – you can find grass carp in the lakes too, and those I suppose you can keep in some cases. But both of these species are in most of our urban ponds, lakes – in canals. Um, now you can go out and fish for carp the way I was talking about with corn, breadcrumbs, worms, things like that, um, and be very successful just fishing a bobber or fishing on the bottom and have a blast. 
or you can fly fish for them, which has become very popular in the Phoenix Valley, and for good reason, because these fish are smart and they're strong and they're challenging. You have to have the perfect cast. You have to place that fly in the right place to get them to eat. They're and so spooky. Even if you do make a perfect cast, nothing wrong. They'll come up, they'll look at it, yeah. make you think they're gonna eat it, and then they'll just they're nope. out of there. Nope. And yeah. once once they decide they're not gonna eat it, you are not pre-convincing them that they're gonna no, eat it. No, no, once it's done, it's done. Yeah. I like to tell people, like, if you hold a carp and look at it, it's looking back at you. Yeah. It's thinking about its situation. It's acknowledging you. If you hold a trout, you don't see any of that, yeah. you know, or a bass. <laughs> you, you just see them going, what's going on? I'm right trying now. to breathe. Yeah. yeah. No, but a, tra- a carp is, you can, you can just, I don't know. I'm, this is totally anthropomorphism, but, <laughs> but you can see it in its eyes that it's thinking about the situation, you know, yeah. and it's, uh, yeah, they're just such a neat fish. One cool, like this is a, kind of on the carp topic, but so the first fish commissioner was actually the first head of the um, Smithsonian. I forget the guy's name now, but he was the first fish commissioner appointed by the president. This is 1800s, mid 1800s. Um, one cool story is he actually raised carp and catfish in the Washington Monument pools. So like you see that that scene of, you know, Forrest Gump and the, the Washington pools, that used to be full of carp and catfish. And I remember the story of him getting real upset at the president at the time because they had a big 4th of July celebration and they were shooting fireworks off and he was upset that they were messing up his fish <laughs> in those pools. But all those fish weren't in the Western United States. Like they're relatively new on the scene and they actually trained all those carp and european fishes asian fishes Um, a lot of it had to do with people didn't want to eat the native species out west so people saw like a bony tail chub or they saw a sucker and they thought it looked weird and they thought it tasted weird and they were used to eating things like bass carp catfish so those things didn't exist in the western united states those were all actually trained out here so i think that's interesting and now they're kind of taken over especially the bass side things you're asking about warm water species um Bass is obviously a huge deal. Stripers, but largemouth, smallmouth. Um, we caught smallmouth out of the Black River not that long ago, so there's opportunities for that. All of the Salt River chain lakes are awesome bass fisheries. Um, I spent pretty much all summer on Roosevelt, did really well on largemouth. And you can fish for those through the winter. Um, the water temperature won't get as cold as the air temperature. It's probably a month behind. And so you might have to change your tactics. You know, you've been crankbaiting or doing like jerk baits, you go to like a, a jig action or do some deep drop shotting and you're still going to do pretty well. Yeah. You know, um, the fisheries in Arizona are kind of delicate. I, I, I maybe I'm using the wrong word there, but what I'm getting at is our native fisheries looked nothing like the fisheries we have today. Um, and this can be a good thing and this can be a very detrimental and bad thing. And maybe we, we can get into that, but there's history of the bass fishery because I've always always been a fly guy, so I, I don't know this history. But but I, I hear about like some of these lakes, like maybe Canyon, um, that were just epic largemouth fisheries, and then something happened. So uh, I know just one particular. There's been a lot of issues with the temperature, the rising temperatures, and algae blooms. Yeah. Algae blooms really affect the bass fishing. I remember this is early 2000s, but there was one that pretty much just decimated the whole chain. The golden algae is toxic okay. to fish. It also takes up all the oxygen in the water, so it really stretches fishes out two ways. But that had a big effect. Also around that same time, 
Uh, gizzard shad, which is an invasive species, got introduced into those chain lakes, and they basically took over. They get pretty big. They can get up to about a foot long, and they're real big, and they'll outcompete bass for really? resources, and they'll actually eat the small bass. Yeah. And they had a big effect on the bass fisheries, but if you look at all the state records as far as bass goes, late 80s, Canyon Lake, Roosevelt Lake, they're pulling 16-pound bass out. And so it's just now starting to recover from those early 2000s issues and be back okay. to kind of its former glory. Yeah, that had to be a real heartbreaker for that community. Mm. Yeah. Well, like Roosevelt, we went there to fish for a carp tournament. We were trying to catch bigmouth buffalo, and we ended up um, only catching bass all yeah. day. I assume the buffalo are non-native to Arizona as well. Correct. Okay. I believe so. Yeah. I don't 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 fact check me on sure, that. Sure, sure. And technically they're not a carp per se. They right. look just like carp. Yeah. Same yeah, thing with native same thing with the grass fish. carp. Technically that's not a carp, it's a white amur. Sure. They changed the name to intrigue people to actually use those as what you're talking about to get the grass and the algae out of certain places. And so they changed the name to kind of entice people to put them in their ponds and things like that. Yeah. But technically, that's a different subspecies altogether also. All right. Well, before I get into the depressing stuff about, you know, exotic fishes um, and how they compete with native mm -hmm. fishes, let's talk more about some more warm water opportunities. Uh, what about the good old bluegill? Bluegill are everywhere. Yeah. Everywhere. Yeah. Any community fishing water, you go out there and you throw any dry fly early in the morning, mm -hmm. they just, yeah. they're yeah. just popping at it. And wow. they're in these lakes up in the White Mountains, too. We were at uh, Woods Canyon targeting trout. This is during the time we had the fish camp I was talking about. And we were fly fishing, obviously. And it was a tough trout bite. At that point, they're a little bit deeper. They were killing sunfish, which are invasive. So we were teaching the kids, you know, when you catch these, we want to get these out of the lake mm -hmm. as much as we can. But bluegill are in pretty much any water in Arizona. Yeah. Yeah, and I've, I haven't been over there yet, but over on the west side of the state, all those lakes over there have some ginormous red ear sunfish. From I, what I, I hear. hear about those. Yeah, yeah there's it's, like potential world records. Yeah, someone out. just caught, uh, I don't know if it was the state record or the world record, like maybe a year ago yeah. or something like that. But it's like a, a giant eight pound bluegill. I'm like, what, what is going on here? Right. And then in the... On the bass side of things, in the bass community, another big fish that the same fishermen are always after is crappie. The black crappie right. community is a big deal, especially yeah. on the Salt River. The people are, I see pictures 20, 30 crappie a day. They're a really healthy population. Do you say on the Salt River? The Salt River lakes, yeah. Oh, okay. So like gotcha, all, the, gotcha. all the same lakes. Um, crappie are kind of an interesting species because they're on a kind of a weird reproductive cycle. They don't reproduce every year like your typical fish. They actually have like a a seven year generational gap before they start breeding again. Really? And so it'll be times where crappie fishing is down and that's actually what it is. It's there's a longer reproductive cycle than other fish have. I didn't know that. They are, they're probably my favorite eating fish. Mm, very good. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. That and walleye. Are yeah. Walleye. My two and then I'll just put catfish as number three into there. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but yeah, walleye and crappie are just the best. And we kind of hit on flatheads, but there's a couple different catfish you can catch. There's channel cats and flatheads mm -hmm. in Arizona. There's also bullheads. I know there's a couple of lakes in like the shoal area that have big yellow bullheads in them yep. that you can catch. Um, most of the community waters are going to be stocked with channel cats. I think we get those from Arkansas yeah. with the right state. We get trucked in from Arkansas. Um, those will get on the big end, 15, 20 pounds if you catch a real big one. Yep. But like I said, those flatheads, I see people all the time pulling out 40 Oh, yeah. 50 pound flatheads yeah. and that's pretty yeah you mentioned fish. bartlett earlier and that is kind of the the you know blue ribbon flathead fishery in arizona um and they're there because for whatever reason 
that lake has a giant population of like one and two pound carp, you know, or half pound to two pound. Um, you can sit and catch them all day long, just chucking corn. And that's what those guys do. They go out and they catch a whole bunch of those carp and then they, they fish all night for flatheads. And that's why those flatheads get so giant as they eat those big carp, you know? Yeah. Um, and what, what a neat fishery. I want to get out there and do it on a kayak. Yeah, those are fun trips. You spend the day catching bluegill and carp just yeah. off the top on a bobber, worms, corn, put yeah. them in a live well, put them in a bucket, and then you spend the night, you hook them under the dorsal, put a big weight down, and you're catching big catfish. Those are fun yeah. trips. Yeah, it, it's a different animal. Flatheads, you know, you're not going to go to your, your local uh, park pond and chuck a hot dog out there and catch flathead. They, they eat live bait. They're, they're predatory fish. They, they hunt. Um, so you have to use live bait. It's very rare. I won't say very rare, but it's rare that people catch them chucking, you know, livers and hot dogs. Mm-hmm. But uh, so you got to put a little more work into it. It's going to be a weekend. It's going to take heavier equipment. And in really a boat is, is you don't have to have a boat. It can be done from the bank in places, but uh, a boat is certainly helpful. Yeah, for sure. Another cool methodology I got into recently is targeting stripers specifically mm-hmm. and actually using anchovies cut up anchovies and you kind of chum a specific stretch of water and then you're using a jig or using a spoon and kind of pulling it through that chum line yeah and looking for um, boils on the top of the water for stripers that's a lot of fun too that that's a fishery that i really regret not taking the time to learn about and and again i like to throw flies and nobody was really doing it but it just last year a couple guys i'm sure you guys know kind of seem to have kind of figured out they caught some nice stripers on flies yeah um and i don't know what's if it's the striper spawn or if it's the bait fish spawn that gets the, the fish the stripers shallow but i need to work on that and get it figured out i like it down there this spring yeah lake pleasant is a really good place to do that a lot of times on their largemouth bass fishing and you can't help but catch stripers there's a lot of stripers in lake pleasant I've also had good luck at Lake Powell. Certain yeah. certain um, fingers of Lake Powell do really well for like jigging for stripers. Yeah, yeah, interesting. All right, so what else do we not cover in the warm water category? We got bluegill. We got bass, smallmouth bass. You know, you and I got to catch them the other day. Smallmouth bass, and we uh, one of our fishermen caught a, a chub. So you have those yeah. native fish you'll run into on the Salt River and on the Black River. Yeah, um, you can Seems catch like those. Native chub and snoring suckers seem to compete okay with. Than the eastern, you know, non-native and arguably invasive fishes. Yeah, well, they're pretty. They're tough. Yeah. Fun to catch. Yeah, so fun to catch. They are a ball, and they're beautiful too. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, the bony cell chub we caught had real good coloring on it. It was like an orange green color. Mm-hmm. They're typically more silver, but they had kind of adapted to that stretch of the Salt River. It was a little darker. It was cool mm-hmm. to see. Nice. Um, but yeah, smallmouth, we don't have a lot of smallmouth fisheries. I grew up in the Ozarks where all of our rivers were smallmouth fisheries and it's probably my favorite freshwater fish, but, uh, the black river does have a fishery. Um, it's all on reservation land. So you have to have your, your permits to get in there. Um, and sometimes as, as we encountered the other mm-hmm. day, it can be quite troublesome getting to these yeah, spots. Some of these roads, you gotta, you gotta commit to going down to get yeah, there. Yeah. yeah. But we had a blast, you know. We probably caught, well, 20 fish a piece, you know. Yeah. Um, now, the thing about, I do see guys catch, you know, nice two-pound smallmouth. But it just seems like there is a plethora of half-pound and one-pound smallmouth in those in the, that river. But other than that, you got Lake Powell. That's got a good smallmouth fishery, too, as well as stripers. Um, and I think some of the rim lakes, uh, is it Woods Canyon, has some smallmouth in it, I think. Yep. I've actually done pretty good smallmouth Um on the Colorado River, like in the Parker area, yeah, on that stretch of the river, um, on 
just a bass boat, but like around docks and shade, like you'll run into smallmouth on that stretch south of Lake Havasu over mm-hmm. there. Yeah. Yeah. I always forget about the Colorado River fishery over there. I know Yuma's got a vibrant fishing community that mm-hmm. just focuses on the river. They have like bass tournaments and stuff. Oh, yeah. We talked about our fish AZ network um, about events. Yuma's real active in that community. You uh-huh. talked about they have lots of fishing events. And you look at the numbers and there's people signing up for those events. They're usually full. So they have a real active yeah. community. They got a couple good lakes and then the Colorado River, obviously. Yeah, the Yuma Valley Rod and Gun Club yep. is who hosts those events down right. there. Right. Yeah. They get a ton of participants down there. So it's pretty active. Mm-hmm. Yeah, their president, Pat Heddington, is on uh, our executive board. And uh, we, we, we keep talking about getting together and doing, doing a podcast on that Rod and Gun Club. And for me, man, I see them as an inspiration because you take a place like Yuma, and Yuma people are very proud. They're like Michiganers, you know? Um, but, uh, yeah, we'll talk about a desolate place out in the middle of nowhere, and they've got such uh, an active sporting community yeah. and, and that Ron Gun Club. And it's like, man, if they can do that there, nobody has an excuse. Yeah. You know what I mean? So and My first time dove hunting, actually, I mean, mm-hmm. it was just this last year, and we went down to Yuma. That was yeah. my first experience. Did I there. see you there? I don't know. I had to. I saw Doug. Yeah, you saw yeah. Doug and Jesse. I had okay. to leave a day early. I okay. had to go. Yeah, um, I think we talked about you, though. Yeah. Hunting. All right, yeah. It, it's a good time. I'm always like, ah, I don't want to really go down there. It's too many people. It's too hot. And that's not how I like to hunt. I like to hunt by myself in the wilderness, you know. But dove hunting is a different story, you know. It's it's a community thing, at least in a case like that. Yeah. Uh, and I always have a blast. I, yeah. You know, I, I'm always glad I went. Those waters are kind of, I mean, they're not a hidden gem, but they're farther to get to. So the Colorado River, Lake Havasu, it's a, it's a bit of a drive compared yep. to some of the other places you can get. But like on the Bill Williams River, like Alamo Lake, mm-hmm. I've been there a couple of times. That's really good bass fishing. Yeah. So if you have the time to kind of spend more than a day and take a trip and they have casitas and stuff you can stay at, that's a place worth going. If you're a true bass fisherman looking for like a different place besides the Salt River or Lake Pleasant, Alamo Lake, and then fishing the Bill Williams River, just the the habitat around it it's in like you said it's kind of out in the middle of the desert but then you run into that river beautiful habitat to look at too yeah you know i like to tell people you know that aren't from arizona and they're like arizona you know what are you going to fish for there because everybody thinks it's all desert and they're not entirely wrong yeah fishing can be difficult here the first thing everyone said to me when i told them i was moving to arizona they're like you're a fish guy though you're not gonna find (laughs) any water down there right I was pleasantly surprised when I moved yeah, here about yeah. how much water. The cold water fisheries had. can be really, really done good. Yep. Um, but yeah, one of the things like, you know, Alec, when you and I were wading Black River the other day, you know, these rivers, these, these ecosystems are different. Uh, back east, you, you, you know, you can stand in, in the Black River. And it's a beautiful river, crystal clear. You know, it's full of smallmouth. But and look around and you don't see a bait fish anywhere. In the Ozarks, you stand in that same river, same water quality, same size. Any one place you stand and you look around, you're going to see a diversity of bait fishes, all different sorts. There's just life everywhere around you. But, you know, this is a desert. And that's probably why those fish are all like in the one, one and a half pound range. But yeah, that's, uh, that's what I was going to mention. You were talking about the size of those. Yeah, the smallmouth we caught were all the same and it has a lot to do with what they're eating. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, still, it, kind of, it was beautiful. It was so nice to get out and wade in that river. Um, so I guess. Trophy fisheries, warm water speaking, largemouth, I think can be argued that we have trophy fisheries here. Um, flathead catfish, absolutely trophy fisheries here. Am I missing anything? I mean, yeah, the flathead for sure is it's the biggest fish that's ever been taken out of any water in Arizona was at Bartlett. Yeah. And then 
I mean, there's big bass. I mean, the I think the state record for largemouth is six, almost 17. I think it's 1683, and that's out of Canyon Lake. Yeah. People always talk about Canyon Lake as being tough because it is deeper. Um, you won't catch a lot, but that's the place you want to go if you want to catch a big fish. And then Roosevelt, if you want to catch a bunch. But I would say Canyon, Canyon Roosevelt are probably our trophy bass sites. And then Alamo Lake, I'll throw that up there too. There are big bass coming out of that one as well. Okay. And as far as warm water trophy stuff, I would say the red-eared sunfish. I mean, yeah, yeah it's a sunfish, but it's it, their trophy size. If you, if fish you want to put there. your name on a list somewhere of record holders, that's a good place to go looking for it. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. And there's those guys out there. All they do is chase world records. Yep. Usually that's saltwater community yep. and they're they're fishing for line class records, but those folks are out there. Um, all right. So to summarize the warm water stuff, if you are a beginner um, or, you know, you have mobility issues, you can't get out of the city, travel issues. Uh, what I would recommend is, would we still have like uh, email fish stocking reports coming out of Game Fish? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I don't know if they're... I don't know if we email you, but it's okay. all up on it's our website. Online. If you just go to the community fishing program right. um, page and it has the stocking schedule and it'll tell you whether we're stocking catfish or trout. Yep. Yep. Another, and then, another cool thing for beginners, as far as where to go, like if you're going to, it's kind of intimidating going to like Roosevelt Lake. Cause you say go to Roosevelt Lake, it's a big body big of water. Yep. So you're like, okay, I need more specifics. One cool thing on the website also is that they have a good map of where they've gone and put structure in the lake and they actually have it marked on a map. So if you're really starting off, you rent a boat for the day and you're like, I don't know where on the lake to go. That's a good place to start place, is look yeah. at where they put those sunken uh, habitats down yeah. and start there and kind of work those. Yeah. Yeah. And I would argue that on the urban side of things, um, when you fish in accordance with when they stop can make and break your trip. Because yeah. um, a lot of people take full advantage of those ponds um, and they like to eat those fish. Um, you know, and there's, there's limits set, but you know, there are, there are folks that don't pay attention to that stuff, unfortunately. Um, and you know, the, the stocking truck will come dump a bunch of catfish in there. And in a couple of days, if it's fished hard, there might not be very many left. So, so if you keep an eye on those things, um, it, uh, it can really make or break your trip. I always tell people to be, you know, I think the way it works right now, Chase probably knows better, but when they list a stocking date on that website, mm -hmm. it gives you a date, but that means that it could be stocked any point from that date yeah, through like a, a week. Yeah, so yeah, it's not date. technically that day that it's for sure going to happen. Right. Yep, so. They give you a seven day range. And so yeah. that kind of keeps people from showing up and being right by the truck. And right. I always tell people, you don't want to fish for those fish that day or even the next day because they're not going to be super active. They're shocked. They're kind of freaked they're, out. They're, they're not going to be out. eating a whole lot. So you want to give it a couple of days after the stocking before they're going to start hitting stuff anyway. Right. So. Yeah. I guess so to segue into cold water fisheries in those same ponds that you get to catch catfish all summer long in the wintertime, they start stocking trout in them. Um, and like you said, like I know Tempe town Lake, they would do this big event, right? Press event. Yeah. Everybody comes, they dump the fish in there. There's a bunch of kids fishing fish aren't eating yeah. you know they're they're scared they're confused they're disoriented <laughs> nobody catches anything but you know it's a good photo op and gets kids outside yeah um but yeah those this past year we were stocking some pretty big fish because we've had the issues with all the hatcheries and stuff um so we were shipping in fish from other states and the size class of the fish that we were putting in there is pretty good. Yeah, that's that's one thing, Eris, how I understand it anyway, and you gentlemen probably know better than me, is a, a shift they've made this last year or two was, um, I think they lessened the daily limit. They asked the public, hey, do you want more fish? Do you want bigger fish? And I think the overwhelming answer was bigger fish. Um, and they've delivered on that promise. Yep, so now we stock, um, stock the same amount of pounds 
because it still costs the same per pound of fish as how gotcha. we buy them. Um, so we stock the same amount of pounds, but it's fewer fish now, but all the fish are a lot bigger. Yeah. So, yeah. and that's, but, yeah, it's one, like you said, that survey went out to people on, across the board all said, I'd rather catch a bigger fish than catch a bunch of small ones, which is how I feel too. It's, you know, it's yeah, more too. exciting, yeah. but, um, that's one important aspect. We always, you know, encourage it's, it's the law, but you need a fishing license to fish, but it's an important thing because that goes directly back to Arizona's game and fish budget. I think right now, what does it cost Chase to get a fit, a trout raised and stocked in Arizona? I think it's eight dollars a fish it is right now. Eight dollars a fish. Wow, so that's and that's interesting. It's a lot of money to stock, you know, hundreds of thousands of fish across the state at eight dollars a piece, and so people fishing without a fishing license doesn't help that. You know, if you're really yeah. enjoying the trout fishing, you buying the lions, buying a license goes directly back into that program. So that's really interesting. I, I kind of I feel like that that tidbit should probably be more well-known. People might value those fish a little more if they yeah, knew that. Exactly. And it's, it's one of those things that it's constantly changing, yeah. right? Like the, a lot of that goes into the price of a fish is just transporting the fish from the hatchery to the lake. Yeah. Like gas is expensive. Sure. Um, so it just kind of depends on the timing, but about, about eight bucks a fish is where we're setting wow. up for trout. Yeah. That kind of helps me come to terms with something I've, I've struggled with. And that is, I, I always have a goal, right? Um, my current goal though, is I want to catch a pike over 40 inches on the fly, you know, up in Northern Arizona where I live. Um, Lake Mary's my main, my main focus there. Um, I haven't gotten close yet. I get some hammer handles here and there, but I've not gotten close, but every year people are pulling them out of there. You know, I see it happening. So I know they're there, but Ashurst has pike as well. It's a fishery that, uh, was started illegally. Um, and, they're basically feeding those pike when they stock those trout. So yep. they, they work actively to get those pike out of there, which hurts my heart a little bit, mm-hmm. but I get it. I also understand, you know? Yeah. Uh, and if they probably weren't, if, if they let it go, stop stocking it, let it be a pike fishery, then those pikes probably all turn into hammer handles too and it'd be pointless. But yeah, they'll, yep. eat, they'll start eating themselves and then they'll just kind of disappear. Yeah. Um, that was one of the projects I worked on at the UVA actually was at Asher's removing pike. And yeah. So I'm part of the problem. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. That's a big deal because they, like you said, you're just feeding the pike at that point. Right. Um, That's pretty expensive, pretty expensive undertaking, I suppose. Oh, well. Um, all right. So cold water fisheries, uh, we have our urban fisheries that get stocked with trout, not just trout, but nice trout. Yeah. Um, and you know, they're a great fish to take home and eat too. Not my favorite. I keep a few every year, you know, I throw them on the smoker. Um, but certainly nothing wrong with them and they can, they can be delicious. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Not, not my favorite either, but yeah. We um, actually, I keep bringing up our fish camp, but it's just got so many aspects that are awesome to talk about. Sure. One of the merit badge requirements for the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts um, for fishing side of things was to catch, clean, cook, and then eat a trout. And so when I first heard about that, when we were getting the program started, I was like, I wonder how kids are going to deal with that that have never done it before. And I was ready to see some squeamish kids and some nose and some, you know, fainting at blood. And we had 36 kids, 36 kids caught, cleaned, cooked, and got to experience that whole process of going through that and then eating the fish around a campfire. And so perfectly good to eat a three and they were, they were tasty and the kids all really enjoyed that aspect, which was really cool to see. Yeah. See, while the pike thing hurts my heart, that warms my heart. Yeah. yeah. I think that is just an awesome experience for a kid. Um, and you know, it, it, you'd be surprised. Like I teach a small game uh, processing and cooking class for the Becoming an Outdoors Woman program. And yeah, I always expect squeamish too, but it's like, I think people, it's more the idea than the actual thing. Cause the actual thing is really part of being a human. It's part of the human experience and it comes a lot easier than people expect it to. Yeah. 
for sure. And I like, think a lot of people too, especially on the stocking side, I think they have a real problem with the harvest, you know, and I try to educate as many people on like the whole purpose of us growing the stock fish and putting them in there is for people to do those activities. Yeah. A lot of those fish are genetically engineered to not be able to reproduce. So it's not like they're going to go start a population and right. we do that separately. That's a different undertaking, but these fish are specifically designed for you to go catch, take, take out and do what you want with them. So that's kind of, you know, it kind of lessens the, maybe the, some of the guilt about taking right, fish out. Right. And but, those urban fisheries in the Valley, they're not, they're not going to survive. Yeah. They, you know, they, the water's going to be warm way up. too warm yeah, for them yeah. to live anyway. So, so it's, it's a put intake fishery. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. Uh, so I guess moving into more cold water stuff, and this is an area I'm deeply interested in. So it gets, gets complicated because there's yeah. so many directions I could go with it, but uh, let's start with, uh, tactics, you know, you have the fly fishing stuff, which I'm sure we'll get to. Um, but also, you know, you don't have to be, you know, a dyed in the wool flying or, you know, that that's all you eat, breathe and think. Yeah. Um, you know, you can take uh, that, that, you know, push button rod and reel and a bobber and a hook and a couple split shots and some worms or some power bait yep. and go catch a, 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 your limit of these trout mm -hmm. and take them home and eat them. Very so, easily. Yeah. yeah. Like growing up before getting into fly fishing, we just took, you know, regular spinning rods. The simplest setup is throw a sinker down the line, put a split shot, tie two hooks off it, let it sink, let it float off the bottom with some power bait. And you're going to catch, like you said, your limit in trout. So it's not, yeah. not rocket science for the main thing with fly fishing is it gives you the opportunity to catch those bigger fish. Cause you're using more representative bait for what they're actually chasing those bigger trout. Mm -hmm. So the only thing with power bait and the smaller hooks is you're going after a specific set of sized fish. Yeah. 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 I would say with most fishing, a fly rod and reel puts you at a bit of a disadvantage. Um, but when it comes to trout, there's a lot of cases that you're, you're the top dog, you know, you, yeah. you're the one that's going to catch most fish that day. I've also had a lot of success trolling, which is kind of a, sure. some people don't like it because you're really just kind of throwing, you're throwing the line out there you're in a boat, you're pulling the line through the water and you're letting it sink and you're not physically holding it the whole time. You're just kind of waiting for the bite. Some people kind of have an issue with that because it's, it's more like you're kind hey, of trolling a cast master. I've caught more fish trolling a cast <laughs> yeah. master than anything else, yeah. especially in those lakes where they're a little bit deeper. Like you go to big lake and you're trying to catch stuff and it's warm, you know, and those fish are deep trying to stay cool. Like trolling oh, yeah. is a great tactic. I, you catch a lot of fish that way. Well, judge me however you want. I just like to catch fish. I like to do it with flyer on reel. Now I won't take it to the point where I'm going to put a minnow on the end of my flyer. Yeah. But I have no qualms with trolling a fly. In fact, if I'm, if I'm on a lake, especially, um, and I'm going from point A to point B, I'm going to be dragging a fly behind me. Yeah. There's and no question about I'd it. I'd almost rather troll than if I'm fishing still water staring at a bobber. Yeah. That's an, rough. An, an indicator. Yeah. Like you can catch you, a lot of fish like that. You, you can, but, but it, it's just, that's rough to me. It's, I like stripping streamers. Yeah. I like to get that hammer bite, but then there's other times, um, you know, just, just having a dragonfly nymph, you know, yeah. a damselfly nymph, uh, and a midge, you know, floating under a bobber and, and, and the waves is just going to kill everything else you try yep. to do. Yeah. Coronamid and a little yeah. semi-seal leech sitting under an indicator mm -hmm. is, but it can, it can be horribly boring though. And they're not eating fast. Yeah, yeah. It, it can be. I just think if you're, if you're realistic about what you're fishing for, so if you're just there to catch fish, have a good time, like there's no, you're going to catch fish throwing out power bait and smaller hooks. You know, uh -huh. if you look at the state record fish and you're going for that, I've 
I would say 99%, maybe not that many, 90% of the state records are coming on bigger lures, Rapalas for trout, or mm -hmm. big streamers, or something big that's imitating a small fish, something like that that's not power bait. Yeah. Yeah. Man, one thing I noticed, uh, me and my kids one night were watching, we got a YouTube world record fish, and we're watching all these videos about world record fish caught. The reoccurring theme the whole time was, yeah, I was in my boat, I saw something on the fish finder, I stopped, <laughs> I dropped in, I'm like, I don't have a fish finder, but I'm starting to think I'm really missing out on something. Yeah. So my, I have a buddy who has a boat and he has one of the new Garmin live scopes. Oh on it. yeah. That's a whole nother thing. Yeah, it's a whole, it's a whole yeah. nother thing, but wow, does it make yeah. a huge difference? We were, yeah, we were talking about bass fishing. One of the more fun things to do is use your, your fish finder. I've got a, a hummingbird on my bass boat, but it gives you, you know, directional view. So you look down, but you can also look sideways and you can yeah. look all the, you know, at the same time. And the, and fish finders are almost more useful for finding the habitat right. than the actual fish themselves. Yeah. So like side scan on a lot of them, you can you can see those big boulders, you can see that cobble, you can well, see if it's gravel, yeah. that sort of thing. So that's like, that's mainly how I'm yeah. using a fish finder to find fish. Um, it's not necessarily looking for the fish itself. I go to it if I'm, especially bass fishing, if I'm throwing a reaction bait, if I'm throwing a crankbait or a jerkbait at some shallow water and I'm just struggling, I turn to the fish finder, go a little bit deeper and usually turn to like a jig yeah. and use that fish finder to my advantage and put it in, you know, not yeah. a school, but find some fish and jig. If you watch Bassmasters, like they show it on Fox Sports or they, yeah. sometimes on ESPN, if they're not crankbaiting, they're jigging and they're looking, they're not even looking at the water. They're just kind of staring at their fish finder, just right. looking off the side jigging. So it yeah. definitely helps. Well, my thinking right now is Lake Mary, and I don't mind sharing this fishery. I don't think anybody's going to get mad at me for this. Mm. Um, there's no cover. There's hardly any structure. Yeah. So you ought to be able to see anything, especially if you're looking for a big fish yeah. on a fish finder. Now, so I probably will have one by the spring. It is a goal one. Um, but the live scope thing, it's kind of controversial. It, it is. And it, I, I don't it know very... that I would enjoy it. So but I'm sure I would enjoy it. I, I'm just worried it's going to take away the I, mystery. I thought the same thing until yeah. we used it to fish for lake trout in Colorado. Yeah. And it doesn't matter if you can see everything they're doing. You're still, they're still going to outsmart you most okay. of the time. Um, they're expensive it, too. They, they, they are pricey. Yeah. Um, but it's one of those things where, yes, I can see how it can kind of take the sporting out of yeah. it a little bit, makes it more like a video game and give you an, un but right. at the same time, it does exactly what other fish finders do. It still tells you where they are, what they're, it, it's just, more interactive it gives you right. that a little bit more of an advantage i feel like sure. all fishing technology somebody's had a gripe with it at the beginning and the longer it goes oh, it just yeah. becomes it, more it's accepted, not going so anywhere yeah. yeah for sure but you know i see these i like kayaks yep. you know um but i see these kayaks for these tournament anglers and it's like they have two large screens mm -hmm. set up in front of them and i'm just like ah, it just makes me feel weird That's yeah all. yeah Kayak, you need more like the little the little six inch one that just yeah. Well, I, I want right a there. decent screen. Yeah, but, uh, but not yeah. These are like big computer monitors, you know, <laughs> of live scan. It's like ah, kind of gives you the the people at the concert that yeah. are watching the concert through their phone recording. It right. kind of a feel. Sometimes. Well, you know, I, it, this is and I'm I'm certainly don't mean any uh, disparagement to anyone who gets excited about this. Stuff. Yeah, um, but I've always had the personality. I'd rather ride a bicycle than a motorcycle. I'd rather pedal or paddle a kayak than motor around in a boat um right now i'm in the process of switching from my compound bow to a trad bow 
just because it just doesn't feel like archery to me. You know? Yeah. Um, and, but that's just me. Again, I, I don't expect other people to feel the way I do. But, uh, but yeah, I'm that way on a lot of stuff. I think some of that would come with comfortability too. So maybe yeah. if you're starting out, the more, ben- sure. you know, the more benefits a piece of technology gives you, the better. And then, yeah. Oh yeah. Well, like I was telling you guys at the beginning of this, uh, you, you know, folks that listen to this podcast, I'm sure will uh, have noticed how excited I was on the Falconry podcast we did. And, and now I'm like, all right, I'm taking those steps. Um, and I just, I've shot enough squirrels. I've shot enough quail. I've shot enough doves. You know, I don't need to just keep, I like to eat them. Yeah. But I don't necessarily need to just keep stacking them up. And to do it with a bird of prey, I'll take one over a dozen, you know, with a gun. Yeah. I think, anyway, that's what I'm looking forward mm-hmm. to. So we'll see. Yeah, it's, it's like that. It's what we preach through the R3 program is that next step. Like mm-hmm. where you, keep, you keep developing your skills and becoming a better and better angler. And yeah. So, yeah, just adds that extra layer of sure. self-accomplishment <laughs> when you do it. All right. Um, so cold water fisheries here in Arizona. They are better than most people think. Yep. You have to work for it a little bit more in a lot of places. Some places you don't. Um, but yeah, we've got a good cold water fishery here. Uh, we've got a whole host of wild exotic species, brown trout, rainbow trout, uh, cutthroat trout, tiger trout. Um, and then we also have two native species. One of them only occurs in Arizona, in the White Mountain region. That's Apache trout. And then, of course, the Gila trout uh, occurs in the rim country. And then... Uh, I don't know, what would you call the country down southeast Arizona where because it's still the rim? I know over in the Gila Wilderness. Yeah, yeah just the Gila, the Gila River down as far south. There's range. still a Gila Trout Range. Yeah. It runs into New Mexico up into the, the range of mountains yeah. right on the west border of New Mexico. Yeah, my little boy and I, we did the New Mexico Trout Challenge just oh, just weeks back. Um, and it was cool to get to catch Gila's in, in the Gila Wilderness. Yeah, yeah, that is sweet. Yeah. I remember it, it wasn't even that long ago when I was – growing up it was hard pressed to find or even get a glimpse of an apache trout so just the recovery it's been ongoing since the 50s you know really big in the late 70s when it got back onto the endangered rather or threatened rather than endangered list but as of what was it a month ago so something like that it's been certified to come off that list and it's the first sporting fish that's ever been listed gone all the way to threat or to endangered and then been taken off the list so that's a huge win for the apache trout but it wasn't even that long ago that you couldn't fish for them Mm -hmm. it was i mean the all the fisheries were closed to you but even if you did you know somehow it was hard to find it. you couldn't really go catch an apache so the fact that we have the ability to just go out somewhere now and catch an apache trout is awesome yeah mm-hmm. yeah, yeah and i would encourage all folks listening you know i guess the good good thing here is most fly fishermen or are in the conservation arena as well yep um some aren't and that's fine uh but most are um and I, I would recommend uh, anyone who hasn't attended it to attend the Wild and Native Trout Conference that's held every year at the uh, Game and Fish Department headquarters in Carefree. I, I think, I, I know Nate plays a big part in Rolling, but is that all Trout Unlimited or is that a, a joint thing? It's a thing? joint thing. So actually I'm taking on a big part of that this mm-hmm. next year. And um, I forget his last name, Alex, that just took over for Zach. Uh, and Alex Lubert. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think. Alex agency. is wonderful. Yep. He and I are going to work together, um, and then I'll work with our Trout yeah. Unlimited guys. But it's it's I would say it's maybe, I don't want to say the wrong numbers, but maybe 70, 30, 80, 20 yeah. Trout Unlimited. We come up with the schedule. Game and Fish helps us with some agenda items and getting some people in to talk. But got last it. year was great. Um, Zach Beard, who just got a Promotion. new bump-up job. Yeah. yeah, congrats to him. Mm-hmm. But 
he uh, he did a really good presentation on wildfires and how that's affected a lot of the yeah. streams. And it was really cool to see the science that they had to back that up and how that's kind of affected their efforts to put those wild populations of Apache trout back on the landscape. So in order for the Apache trout to be delisted, I believe it was 30 wild populations they had to get to. Right. Standalone wild populations and that wildfire, there's been numerous ones, but that's put a big dent in that recovery uh, timeline. Right. And so to see all that science is really cool. Um, we've had the CEO um, of Trout Unlimited come speak a couple different times. So a lot of good speakers, like you said, I think that's going to happen in April of yeah. next year. Yeah. Yeah, I enjoy it. Um, I was fortunate to be invited to speak the last two of them. Um, and, you know, I consider it an honor because those are a lot of people I look up to. Uh, and yeah, the wealth of information you can get, the wealth of fishing spots you yeah. can get from sitting through those presentations. I mean, there's a lot of people at that conference that do it religiously and that are really good at it. So yeah. if you ever wanted to come to a, a round table of expert trout fishing, that's a good place to that's go. That's a good place yeah. to do it. Yeah. Yeah. When I moved here, um, I, but before you go on, I was yeah. going to ask, I was like, what has been your experience being a fly fisherman coming from Colorado to Arizona? You know, what, what was that like for you? What was your expectations versus the reality? My expectations were low when I moved yeah. here. Um, I didn't expect much. And so I had seen a YouTube video um, for wild sake, I think is what it's called. Mm -hmm. um, and they did a whole thing about trying to find the rarest trout in the United States. And one of them was the Apache trout. So that was like on my bucket list for yeah. years. So the very first fish I caught in Arizona was an Apache trout up in near Greer in the little Colorado river. Mm -hmm. Um, so I did that on a fly rod. It was one of the coolest experiences I've had since moving here. Um, but I've always been kind of that. I really like those native fish. Like in Colorado, I love going fishing for cutthroat. It's my favorite yeah. thing to do. Um, but so my, I was pleasantly surprised with the amount of fishing there is here, especially like the East Verde and, uh, Payson, like mm -hmm. water wheel area. Yep. You can go there, catch a Gila trout with your eyes closed yeah. if you wanted to. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of really good, like little creeks and stuff. It's pretty oh, technical yeah. fishing. Mm -hmm. Um, it's not as, well, oh, you can just flip it out there and yeah. you'll catch a fish. Yeah. Um, Some of these creeks are pretty small and there's, it's pretty dense with vegetation and trees. So you mm -hmm. got to know what you're doing as far as casting goes. Yeah. But as a diehard fly fisherman, I love that stuff. Yeah, it is too. so cool that like getting in, getting a bow yeah. and arrow cast them and like, looks like I'm playing uh twister. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's a lot of fun. Some of these, these little blue line creeks in Arizona, if you want to get away from the crowds, that's how you do it. Yeah. Um, but some of these have 20 plus inch brown that doesn't even make sense. They can turn around in a stream like that. Yeah. But they're there, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's just, it's cool. Like yeah. the amount of cold water fisheries that we have really surprised me moving here. That's awesome. They're all over the place. And one thing we talk about is with the drought that we've been in and has been going on in the Southwest for a long time, it's altered the cold water fishing in Arizona mm -hmm. as far as when it happens. And you know, with less snow melt, especially up in the where that you're going cold water fishing, the water temperature doesn't get as cold as early. So the really the fishing season cold water is moved closer to the winter. Yeah. So right about now we're it's November what one today November first. Yep. I mean I'm going fishing this weekend. It's going to be cold, but that's when you're talking about brown trout. This is prime time big brown trout. Yeah. Rainbow trout season. So yeah. it's kind of shifted the whole cold water fishing back a little bit. So right now is kind of when it's going to start. And yeah, springtime it starts a little earlier now. So it's really tough for me because I miss a lot of great fishing in the fall. 
but I'm trying to focus on hunting. And if I have a big game tag, that's a lot of meat in the freezer. I got to put that effort and time into it. And yeah, I, I miss a lot of opportunity in the fall and I hate that, but you know, too, too many cool things. Yeah. So what can you do? It's, it's the trade off. Yep. Um, so yeah, as far as cold water fishing here, I would break it up into say we have like the Flagstaff region. I mean, this is outside of the winter rainbow trout stocking that goes on all over the state. Yep. Um, but we have the Flagstaff region, which unfortunately, um, again, hurts my heart, has basically no move, moving water ecosystems. Yep. Um, closest thing would be Oak Creek in Sedona, um, which is a great little brown trout fishery. Um, and Gila trout are stocked in there as well. Uh, and that's just a beautiful place to fish. Um, you might have to deal with crowds if you're not willing to walk a little bit, but you're not going to find a prettier spot to catch trout in Arizona. Yep. Um, then the Flagstaff area is going to be a number of lakes. Kinnikinnik has really nice browns in it. Chocolate milk water, so they're not very pretty. They're all pale and <laughs> yeah. just sickly looking, but they're healthy big fish. Um, lake Mary has no trout. Um, lower lake. Uh, upper lake did get filled up this year, and they did put some trout in it. Um, so people enjoyed that. It's interesting. Uh, the lake Mary, I always, in my head, you know, growing up, it's in Flagstaff, it's cold. If you look, I, I go back to the record book. A lot of the warm water records, I think the biggest channel cat channel is cat out, of out of Lake there, yeah. Mary, yeah. which is surprising. Yeah, got big northern pike, hard to find for me, but they're there. Um, a really big walleye. It's a great walleye fishery, which is a, a little bit sad because they're full of mercury and not advised to eat. Yeah. Um, some yellow perch, things like that. I think there's bass in there too. Uh, I believe so. Yeah. Um, but then there are... Uh, you know, other lakes, Ashurst, uh, there's a number of lakes up there, but they're all pretty similar. You know, none of them are beautiful, clear water. Whitehorse Lake is a great place for a family to go camp. Um, there's a campground there. You know, there's there's people there, but it's not going to be packed because it's a little farther to get to. But the water's beautiful, you know, clear water. You catch some crappie and fry them up that night. Uh, it, it's a great place to go. Um, no trout, all warm water species, but, but just a nice lake. Um but yeah, the rest of those lakes, they're all pretty similar. They're, they're muddy. They're yep. kind of difficult to fish. You know, it's a little harder to figure out that I've found than other lakes. Maybe that's just my experience. Um, but then you get over to the rim country, um, and that's where uh, we have uh, two populations of wild and native gilas. Is grapevine? Grapevine, I don't know if it's open. Is it open to fishing? There's one that's not. I know. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Then it's probably great, but I think dude's open. I think yeah. dude, dude yep. is the open is where people are catching the yeah. wild yep. gila. Right Why now. did uh, grapevine get closed? What, one of them is closed because of a fire. Okay. So, I, I think I, it's great. It might not be closed anymore. I just okay. the last I heard anything about it, one was closed, uh -huh. um, and it might not even be one that has you've ever been able to fish. Yeah. It might have always been closed, and we just had a population right. in there. Well, then you have the Upper Verde and uh, all of its tributaries. You have some great wild rainbow populations up there, beautiful little wild fish. Some of them you can go and you're not going to see another person all day. Yep. They're so remote. Um, and then there's, uh, which, which branch of the Verde is it that they put the hill in? Uh, east, the east Verde. East, oh, thank you. Yep. East Verde um, uh, is actively stocked with Gila trout and a really fun fishery. Get there early in the morning, especially yeah. if it's the yes. weekend. Beat, beat, the, beat the crowds. Of swimming. It's, <laughs> it's not a lot of fishermen. It uh -huh. is a lot of hikers and swimming. Yep. Um, yeah. One cheat code if you stay away from those. I mean, you're going to park. In, they have parking lots at the, at the East Verde. But if you go between, I think it's Second Crossing and Waterwheel and just walk, it's a little bit more steep and there's less people around mm -hmm. you. So it's less pressure than if you go to water wheel, you're going to run into a lot of people. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then outside of the rim country, you get over in the white mountains and the white mountains is, is 
good of fishing as there is in the nation. Yep. I mean, it's, it's. If you plop me in the middle of the white mountains and told me, asked me if this was Arizona, I'd be like, well, yeah. no way. That's no what way. always attracted me to it. It was, I mean, the fishing, obviously, but just the habitat that you're in. One of the prettiest drives you can take. I'm going to plug my favorite place. It's on the White Mountain Reservation. But if you go, like you're going towards Big Lake, but then, you you know, you're going through McNary mm-hmm. and you're going up to Holly Lake. And it's about a 12-mile drive up to the top. But you go from, I think it's 7,000 to almost 10,000 feet. So you're another 3,000 feet up a mountain. And the, the just the drive up there is beautiful. Oh, yeah. And especially right now, if you want, you're going to have every aspen tree you've ever wanted to see. But that lake is beautiful and one of the better fishing trout lakes that I can mm-hmm. you know, point people to is that one. I think it was 2012 or 13, they actually drained it and redid the bottom because it had been open for so long. And so now it's really good. The store is reopened there. But um, places like that, obviously Big Lake, yep. Reservation Lake, all those are great. Yeah, and all the upper stretches of the Black River. You, know, yep. you and I got to fish for wild native Apaches on, on the West Fork a couple mm-hmm. weeks ago. Yeah. And the little Colorado River is mm-hmm. fantastic oh, yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah, I think that's the, the quintessential go-to spot for your first wild yep. Apache. Yep, so 100%. That's where I caught my first one, yeah. Yep. One cool one cool tool, and they're not a sponsor of this podcast or anything, so I'll just shout them out for free, is Trout Routes. Mm-hmm. It's a newer app, but it's basically a map, and it's, it's very interactive. And it's got creeks that I've lived here my whole life and have been fishing and that I don't even really? know about. And it's just random little pockets of water that have trout. It's essentially on X for fishing. Yeah. I haven't can, utilized it. Yeah, you, it's you can click on each little stream is as small as it is. You can click on it. It'll tell you the species that are in it. And it's kind of like by class one, two or three, one being the best. And then there's like a gold tier. So like Lee's Ferry is like, I think the only gold tier one we have that's technically a blue ribbon yeah. certified. Uh, yeah. Thanks for mentioning that. I forgot all about Lee's Ferry. Yeah. yeah. We'll that's get what we but there's just so many things in the White Mountains if you open that map. So I encourage if you're a trout fisherman and you're like, I need somewhere new, download trout routes. There is like a paid portion of it that gets you like fish biology, more information. But the basic map and interactive thing is free. So mm-hmm. I use it a lot. You'll be driving down the road and you'll be like, wow, there's just a random I'll check it out. water. Yeah, it's yeah. worth it. Huh. Yeah. Well, speaking of Lee's Ferry, I, I left that one out in my kind of overview of cold water fisheries up here. Uh, Lee's Ferry is probably one of a world probably the only world famous fishery that we have yep. here in Arizona and it's a tailwater fishery. Um, and it's unfortunately it's in trouble too, but, um, it's still a great fishery. Uh, I got to go up there and fish with your boss, Nate, um, just a few months back. And it's the first time I've ever in my life fished with a guide. Um, and that was because we had a reporter there. We had a, yeah. it, it was a work trip. Um, so we had a guide and, I'm not going to lie. It made the difference. I mean, he was very knowledgeable and, you know, my, my typical go-to there is going to be a black zebra midge and, or a scud. Yep. Um, but I noticed Nate over here hooking up more than me and I'm like, what is going on? So, uh, the guy had tied onto him, um, a little Euro nymph, uh, heavy jig nymph. Yep. And it wasn't anything special. It had a hot spot on it. And I'm like, all right, man, time me one on. <laughs> and I just started knocking them out left and right. And, you know, every other cast, if not every cast. We caught so many fish that day. It was nuts. No, it definitely yeah. lives up to all the hype it gets. It's it's legitimate. It, yeah. You can, I mean, the first time I was over there, I was little. And we just kind of walked up to the edge. You can see 
you know, giant right. trout just swimming. You can see them. It's right. not, it's not a myth. It's not hype. It's, it's a legitimate yeah. blue ribbon fisher. And I, I still have yet to get up there, but kind of touching on what you, yeah. a guy. Yeah, we, we tried to invite you on that trip. Yeah. Yeah. I, that was a good, oh no, no, that wasn't, that was somebody else. I'm so sorry. Oh, no, you're good. You're good. You're good. <laughs> we should have invited you. I remember maybe we did. I think, no, I think I did get an invite. I think I was out of town. Was okay. All right. What was going on? Anyways, yeah. going back to a guide. That's another great resource for people who are brand new to fishing. Yeah. You hire a guide. And what I always tell people is don't necessarily go to the guide and like just copy everything they do. Yep. Ask them why they're doing certain mm -hmm. things. Ask them why that we're fishing this one spot, why we're going around this bend here instead of over here. And then you'll learn a lot. Like those guys are out there every day, yep. all year, basically. So they're yeah. a really good resource to learn. Right. Fishing from. And, you know, even with a guide, while the fishing is never guaranteed, uh, it is guaranteed that you can learn a ton if you take advantage of that opportunity. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. One thing I want to bring up when you talk about Leeds Ferry, just kind of reminding me, they had, you know, they have issues with invasive species. There's certain types of mussels that have been introduced there mm -hmm. that are issues. Um, one thing that happened over the summer, we ran into the uh, New Zealand mud snails on Tonto Creek, um, yeah. right where the fish hatchery is. And so that was kind of a an alarm bell that went off and we, you know, they've surveyed it and there's less, but that's something that, you know, the typical angler needs to know about. And so they're invasive. They're New Zealand mud snails. If you've never seen them, they're super small. They kind of look like a black uh, ice cream cone, real tiny. You could fit, I think it's 50 or 60 of them on the face of a penny. Yeah. And they're really bad. Places in back East, like Pennsylvania, Game and Fish has videos where they're reaching into rivers and pulling up just handfuls of them. And the reason they're a problem is they outcompete all the other macroinvertebrates in the water. So everything that the fish is eating, so your flies, your, you know, um, any kind of macroinvertebrate, they outcompete. So everything that they're eating, those snails also eat, and they're more efficient about it. And one crazy thing about them is they're hard to kill. So once they're in a body of water, a fish can actually eat a New Zealand mud snail. It'll pass all the way through the fish, come out the other end, and be alive. Yeah. So it doesn't matter if they're eaten. The only real way to get rid of them is to treat the water. And if you do that, that means you're treating everything else in there and basically killing them. Yeah. And that's a big deal because if it gets into one of the hatcheries, we already talked about the monetary value of this fish. So that's kind of one big concern. But if it got into that, the only way to get rid of them out of the hatchery is to euthanize all the fish in the hatchery. And that's not only a monetary loss, but... Yeah all of the stocking schedules that that hatchery is responsible for just got set back quite a bit. And so yeah. the main thing is fly fishermen, if you're using any type of felt bottom, you know, boot or any kind of equipment where they can get attached, they get attached to you, you go from one body of water to the other and that's how they get spread. So Yeah. And they could be anywhere on your waders. So just make sure you're cleaning your waders once you're done. Yeah. That's a, that's a takeaway Let message. Make sure your things are clean and dry. Yeah. yeah they're they're crazy. Spot. They're crazy creatures because they can live outside of water for two weeks and be fine. They can go through a fish. They're really hard to get rid of. Yeah. When I worked in, um, when I was at CSU going to school there, I worked in one of the fish labs there and we had New Zealand mud snails get into fish lab and it's, it's a process to get rid of them. You got to drain every single tank, disinfect, scrub every single tank. Mm -hmm. and let it be dry for a week and then you can start filling back up but it just really puts a halt on so like hatcheries especially it's going to put a halt on everything they do yeah well that's that's just one of the problems with this uh, this iconic fishery yeah uh, that we call these fairy these fairy is technically the grand canyon it's it's the the upper portions of the grand canyon um so you're fishing amongst these giant red walls uh when i was there my family and i we 
got shuttled up, um, and this is just months back, this past summer, and we took three days to float down, only 15 miles, but we took three days so we could just really absorb it, catch a bunch of fish, have a blast camp. Um, took three days to come out. But the very beginning, when I was up by the dam, there were storms everywhere. Um, but I, I'm fishing, and fishing was great. Uh, but I hear this giant roar, and I'm like, what in the world? Where is that coming from? And I'm looking around and looking around, and then I see up above me, on the top of this wall, just a giant wall of water come over, but it, had, it was full of big rocks and logs and sticks, and just all at once, this flash flood came over the edge of the canyon, and uh, and then it continued to flow for the next hours. I was there; it was crazy. That is insane. Yeah, that that, that was probably really cool to see. I mean, scary to see, but really. Yeah, cool Yeah, I mean, to see it, I wasn't in any kind of danger. Oh, okay. It was across the river and okay. above me, but yeah, it was super cool to see. Yeah, uh, similar, not the same kind of thing, but being on the wildfire topic we brought up, I was on Roosevelt on my bass boat, nobody else out there. This was during COVID. So 2020 wildfire happened and I'm sitting on the bass boat and all of a sudden this plane, I'm like, that thing's going to crash into the lake. And it was one of the ones that pick up water and go dump it on the, but it landed, oh, wow. it landed 200 <laughs> yards away from my boat. And I didn't even know if they saw me. I hope they did and just decided to mess with me or something. Oh, but, wow. Uh, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but at least very, the, another issue is like the invasive species mm -hmm. obviously cold water because it comes from the bottom of the dam. Yeah. So it's super cold when it comes out of that. That's what's able to sustain the trout population, right. but they have issues with, you know, they want certain type of trout species, not other ones. And they yeah. are getting those and they're eating the ones sure. that they want other well, bass species, eating the fish and things like that. Considering that we're already over an hour here and I've got a whole podcast on that exact fishery <laughs> that goes over all of this. I would encourage folks to go back and, and listen to that. I think it was called Lee's Ferry and Iconic and Changing. Grand Canyon fishery. But yeah, it's a good one. It's with Jim. All right. Um, so I guess uh, since I touched on it earlier, I quickly want to talk about native and exotic species versus invasive species. Um, first off, to define those two things, an exotic species is any species that is not native to the particular habitat you're referring to. Um, invasive, invasive can be either exotic or native. An example of this would be our junipers here in Arizona um, have become invasive because we've taken fire off the landscape um, and they've, they've taken over a lot of grasslands. That's a native species. They belong here, but they've gotten kind of out of control. They're not in balance anymore. So there we have lots of exotic invasive species in our fisheries. Um, an iconic one is crayfish. Um, the northern crayfish is Orconectus virilis. Back east, that is a very, it's like the red-tailed hawk of crayfish. Um, you find it in a lot of different waterways, a lot of different habitats, but it's kept in check. It's competing with other crayfish species. Here, there's nothing to keep in check. Um, there are lakes here that you'll pull your fly line out of the water and have two crayfish hanging off the fly line. I mean, what quickly, is that? Quickly, too. You yeah. let it sink and they're already... So um, they, they've, they've turned into a monster in Arizona. Um, Horrific, you know, they're they're threatening to our like Chiricahua leopard frogs, our narrow-headed garter snakes, our Mexican garter snakes, all these other organisms that are native um, and relatively rare that didn't evolve competing with these voracious crayfish. Um, but it's just it's it's interesting for someone like me who knows the species from back east and sees how they should be behaving and come yeah. out here and just like my God, I'm almost afraid of them, you know. Yeah. Um, so that's just an example. So when it, we're talking about fisheries, for me personally, you know, we, we've, as human beings, almost completely decimated native fishes in the Southwest. And these are some of the most uniquely evolved fishes in the world. Um, so 
right now, we, we've changed how we manage for wildlife a lot over the last hundred years, right? Mm-hmm. Used to be we just put everything everywhere to see if it's stuck and provide opportunity for sporting, you know? Yep. Today, we don't look at it that way. Today, we still value our sporting opportunities. I love big brown trout, um, and I will pursue them anywhere that I can. That's a German or an old world species. It doesn't belong here, uh, but I love that they're here. Um, what I love just as much is chasing little native wild trout all over the West in tiny creeks. Yep. That's just as exciting for me. Um, in my opinion, we can have both. The, the native fishes, uh, we need to restore and protect them absolutely wherever and whenever we can. But these don't provide opportunity for people to get out, explore, fish, have a good time, um, and, and make that connection to the outdoors and to wildlife. So we still need these opportunities for recreational fishing. Um, one of the things that the Game and Fish Department is doing more of that I see as just very forward thinking and very positive is ramped up the Gila trout uh, stocking programs. So now they can stock. And these are big fish. And they're yep. beautiful. And they taste good. You can eat them. Um, and they stock them in these places where they used to stock rainbows. So now not only are they providing an opportunity for recreational fishing, they're also turning people onto a native awesome species. You know yeah. what I mean? So there is balance for this. And the reason I say it like this is there are people that only care about bass, about brown trout, yep. you know, um, and they think any effort to restore a native fish, especially if it's one you can't fish for, is a waste of time. Yep. And then there's people on the other side that would like to see all eastern sport fish wiped off you know, taken out of these habitats, impossible, but taken out of these habitats in the West. Um, Personally, I think there's a place for both. Uh, I think emphasis needs to be given to those native fishes, even if we can't fish for them. Um, But there's definitely a place for the sport fishery as well. Yeah, it's all all about the balance Mm -hmm. between the two. And hopefully now that the Apache trout is turning in the right direction, that with the Gila stocking, that becomes something that the Apache trout can turn into. But... As far as, you know, eliminating all the sport fish that aren't native, that's definitely not happening anytime soon. Sport fishing, believe it or not, is like top five money makers for the state of Arizona. It's a Mm -hmm. big industry. It makes a lot of money for the state. So that's important. Um, I mean, we're doing a better job restoring native fish. Native fish are cool. I I mean, the, the crazy thing to think, you know, before they dammed up the Colorado River, and that's really what affected a lot of the native fish more were just impeding the habitat as right. far as the way the water actually flowed. So that yeah, was Colorado river is not a cold, clear ice. One. <laughs> no, yeah. I, I slaughter fishery. It's uh, and, but to think that back in the day there were pike minnow, which you've never seen them. They're the biggest minnow species in the so world. Cool. They used to get up to six feet long. There's pictures, six feet long Dude. pike minnow in the Colorado river. And just to think that that used to be a thing. And can, now can you, you can't imagine see, the uh, fishery? It's just, it would have been <sighs> amazing. Man, where I grew up, we've gone way too long on this podcast, but but where I grew up, the St. Francis River, um, basically, you know, there's a deep hole here. Then you go through your riffle, your run, another deep hole kind of thing. Um, I remember reading a sports field magazine when I was a kid and the same river that I grew up fishing on was featured. I had no idea. Every big hole on that river had like a 200 pound alligator gar in it. And it became popular in the twenties and people started guiding with like, you know, big deep sea reels and stuff. And of course, in a fishery like that, they were gone in a, in a moment. Yeah. But I was like, holy cow, right here on my river. Yeah. 200 pound alligator gar where I'm out wading around. I had no idea. Um, and yeah, same thing on the Colorado River, those pike minnow. Can you imagine the 
what sport fishery yeah, that would, would be if we had jacked impressive. it up yeah taking trips sweet. through the canyon fishing for six foot long minnows on a fly rod mm-hmm. oh my god just the fish themselves their biology mm-hmm. are super cool you look at like a razorback sucker and you're like i wonder why it's built that way and it's yeah. for a purpose so like the colorado river used to flood and so those fish are their life history they're genetically inclined to be built like that to survive floods yeah. So they're able to get down in water and actually use their anatomy to avoid sure. the main floodplain, whereas these non-native fish would get flushed out. So they're actually built over time to endure the Western United States weather mm-hmm. and conditions. So that's super cool to me, and I want to see more of them. Yeah. Same with the Apache trout. I remember uh, bear hunting in uh, Bear Wallow Wilderness, and it's it was at the end of one of those long drought stretches we we recently had. And there's only a pool here, another 30, 40, 50 yards, another pool in each one of those pools, and I had Apache trout. Yep. surviving in them you know i was like wow you know a trout that can do that is just amazing and and one thing that i think it may be a important thing to say is there's a difference between native fish and wild fish mm-hmm. i have a lot of people that get yeah, confusion there get confusion there saying well the, it's a wild rainbow like it belongs there it's like it wild just means that it was born in the river mm-hmm. it was produced there it wasn't stocked um so just because it's wild fish does not mean it's a native fish. Yeah. 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 Which still adds value to it. In my yeah. Book. It, uh, I, I agree. Like it adds value. It's, well, it's a lot yeah. cooler to They're catch a wild too. fish. Native yeah. fish. You know, I had a professor ask our class one time. He said, what, you know, the Mona Lisa is nothing special. Why do we hold it in such regard? Like there's fish like that native fish that deserve to be protected and restored. There's a, there's an example in Nevada. I think it is the devil devil's hole pupfish. Mm-hmm. They only exist in that one little hole of water yeah. and it's like a cave sized body of water. And there's an entire protective and that's the last place that that one species and they protect it just like a piece of art. So yeah. I've always looked at it like that. I've had a big connection to the Apache trout being the state fish and really glad to see that it's back on its way to being yeah. back on the landscape. Yeah, that's a very really exciting cool. development. Um, similar down in Oregon Pipe National Monument, the Quito Quito Spring as their desert pupfish, which is a, that subspecies only occurs right there. And only in, I forget the type, the name for it, but only in pools that happen because of rains that get collected in rocks. So it's not like running through intermittent streams. They literally just exist because these rocks yeah. catch water and that's the only place they live. Yeah, talk, really about, cool. talk about a delicate ecosystem. Tough, yeah, yeah, tough environment. But all right, we, we've gone a long, long time. We're going to start losing people. Um, what have we not covered that you guys think uh, is important? The only thing I wanted to on. mention uh, was the Lower Salt River right now is being stocked with trout. So if you're looking yeah. for another place, especially where I'm at, where I live, it's real close. Um, I think it just got started last week or the week before, and they stock it all through the winter. Yeah. So. Yeah, I'll be down on the salt sometime this winter for sure. It's always yeah. a nice break to get out of the snow and get down in the desert. And yeah, for me, it's, you know, super close. It's the closest thing I have to cold water fishing yeah. in Phoenix. So and, yeah. and besides the community waters, but flowing water wise. And uh, coming up pretty quick, if you look at the Fish Easy Network, you'll see Trout Unlimited list Salt River Saturdays. So we get a, as many volunteers as we can. We go down to the lower salt and we basically pick up garbage and mm-hmm. pick up fishing line that we find. Try to restore that habitat as much as we can. If you're new to the state or new to the scene, great place to meet people. A lot yep. of networking. If we're going to fish afterwards, of course, we always take the advantage right. of going fishing. So it's a good place to meet some people and go fishing. Awesome. Yeah. Arizona Backcountry Hunters and Anglers has some uh, fishing line uh, receptacles yep. down there, too, that we, we man. And, and unfortunately, they're usually full of diapers rather than fishing line. But, you know, <laughs> at so least they're putting something serving there, some yeah. purpose. Yeah. Right? So 
Well, yeah. fellas, you guys are fishing today, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah, we're yeah. going to another place we didn't talk about, Silver uh-huh. Creek. There's a hatchery on it. They stock it, and it's catcher and lease only, so it typically has some pretty big trout in there, and it's it's oh, yeah. artificial lure, no barbless hook. Yeah, it's only open, what, October to April, I want to say? So something like that. So we're going we'll to see how that goes. Yeah. goes. We're going to try and All catch right. some fish. Well, thanks, fellas. Thank you for what you do. As, as we pointed out early on in the conversation, I think it's um, just unbelievably important work. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, for, Thanks having for having us on here. This right great. on. All Love right. doing this. Go catch some fish. We will. Thanks. Thank you. All right. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Alec and Chase. Uh, those guys, uh, they, they know what they're talking about. We were fortunate to go over and visit Silver Creek and catch some nice big stalker rainbow trout right after we recorded that. And I had a really good time with those fellows. So until next time, I hope you save a little space in your in your outdoor calendar to do some fishing this fall. And uh, I hope to see you back here in a couple weeks for the next episode of the Arizona Wildlife Federation podcast. If you would like to become a supporter of the Arizona Wildlife Federation, you can do so at the link in the show notes. Just jump on our website, cruise around, learn about the work that we do for you, for our public lands and for wildlife here in Arizona. And if you like what you see, uh, please consider supporting us. Um, By supporting us, you will receive our quarterly glossy magazine that is full of great articles about Arizona's outdoors and wildlife. And I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. So until next time, we will, uh, yeah, we'll see you on the next show.